You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming out this morning. Uh, Let me pray, and then let's dive right in to make the most of uh, the nice weather while we have it. Father, thank you so much for bringing each person here safely this morning. We don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to take uh, the presence of each person for granted. We don't want to take the weather for granted. We don't want to take the ability to meet for granted. So thank you for everything. Thank you for the many ways in which you have provided and are providing for us. Uh, We are overwhelmed by your kindness and grace. I pray, Father, this morning that your Holy Spirit would actively work through the power of your word that you would remind us of things we have forgotten or things, uh, or teach us of things we did not know. Uh, We want most of all this morning to see Jesus. So would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to receive what you have for us this morning through your perfect and infallible word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please take your copy of the scriptures, however you have that, this morning, and turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 contains one of the more complicated and hotly debated texts in the entire Old Testament. In fact, in just the last week, I have read and reread and reviewed sections of commentaries and theological journal articles, some as lengthy as 60 or more pages, just on the final four verses of chapter 9. Obviously, my aim this morning is not to cover all possible interpretations of Daniel's 70 weeks, but to offer you what I believe is the most likely interpretation, and then to make sure you grasp what it's all about that you walk away from here this morning understanding the main point of this text. I don't want you to leave thinking, what on earth does this have to do with me right now? I hope to make that clear. Chapter 9 begins by telling us the timing of the events recorded. It's now the first year of the reign of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. At this particular time, Daniel is reading the scriptures and he realizes that Jeremiah prophesied that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. It occurs to Daniel that this amount of time was about to pass, at which point Babylon would be punished by God and Daniel's people, the people of God, would return home. Friends, notice what this realization prompts in Daniel. It invites a time of sincere confession and intercession. I love this text of scripture. In verses 3 through 19, Daniel confesses his sins and the sins of his people. You see, Daniel knew why God had brought the exile upon Israel, and now he pleads for God's mercy and deliverance. When Daniel has finished crying out to God, he receives an answer. He receives an answer by means of an angel named Gabriel. Now, time does not permit us to walk through every word of this chapter, so let me offer three truths, 
three truths we find revealed in Daniel's prayer and the divine answer to his prayer. Here they are. One, God hates sin. God hates sin. Two, God loves prayer. Two, God loves prayer. And three, God will deliver. God hates sin. God loves prayer. God will deliver. First, God hates sin. Friends, Daniel's prayer needs to serve as a startling reminder to all of us that sin is profoundly serious. It is serious to God and it ought to be serious to us. Look at the text. Notice how Daniel describes the people of God and their sinful actions and attitudes. And I hope you'll take time at some later point to read carefully through this. But let me just mention a number of instances here where God's people are described a certain way. Look at verse 5. They turned aside from God's commandments and rules. Verse 6. They have not listened to God's servants, the prophets. Verse 10. They have failed to obey the voice of the Lord their God by walking in his ways. Verse 11. They refuse to obey God's voice. Verse 14, they have not obeyed God's voice. Did you pick up a theme there? It takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? The serpent tempted Eve by calling into question God's word. Has God really said? You see, this has always been true. The the chief tactic of the evil one is to turn the people of God away from the word of God. If Satan desires to wreak havoc among the people of God, and he does, well, there's no better way than to turn God's people away from God's word. Over and over in his prayer, Daniel repeated the sin of God's people as a failure to listen to the voice of God. Now hear this, this is why this particular demonic tactic or strategy is so effective. When the people of God stop listening to the voice of God, they do not simply stop listening to any voice at all. No, they always replace the voice of God with some other voice. If the people of God turn a deaf ear to the voice of God, they will turn a listening ear to some other voice. And in so doing, they will allow their belief and then their behavior to be shaped by someone or something other than the word of God. This is the story of the nation of Israel. But brothers and sisters, this isn't just an ancient problem. In fact, it's happening right now. As professing Christians try to make sense of what's presently happening in the world, far too many are turning away from the sufficient word of God and they are allowing other voices to offer them unbiblical ways of understanding what's going on. Unbiblical worldviews. So friends, let this text be a warning to all of us. A failure, 
failure to listen to the voice of God will cause nothing but confusion and catastrophe. Here's what else this text makes clear. God will not ignore the sin of his people. God will not ignore the sin of his people, but in love, he will do whatever it takes to win them back. In this case, in Daniel's day, it meant that he would deliver them over to Babylon. This was an act of divine discipline. While God dealt severely with his people, it was ultimately an act of grace, wasn't it? Like Nebuchadnezzar, who God humbled in order to awaken him to his sin and bring him to repentance, here God humbles his people, but it will end in their repentance and restoration, ultimately. So I want you to get this. God God does hate sin. But his hatred of sin does not drive him to act toward his people in a vindictive or capricious way. God's hatred of sin flows from his pure holiness and his perfect love. Now it would be it would be foolish for us to move on from this truth without mentioning the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Why Why should we mention the cross here? Because the cross is the ultimate reminder of just how much God hates sin. He was willing to kill his own son to satisfy the penalty for sin. But the cross also reminds us that the God who hates sin also loves sinners. And desires that all would come to repentance. Again, the cross is the ultimate reminder that God hates sin, but it's also the greatest expression of his love. Instead of sinners having to bear the wrath of God for their sin, they could find grace and forgiveness and new life and peace with God through the atoning death and glorious resurrection of Jesus. So even this story here points us forward to the cross. God hates sin, but this text also reminds us that God loves, God loves the prayer of his people. And in particular, God loves desperate prayer. That's the second truth I want to bring to your attention. God hates sin, but God loves prayer. Notice what characterizes Daniel's wonderful prayer here. Wonderful, but it's sobering. It's heavy. Verse 3. He pleads for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Verse 4. He makes confession. Verse 5. He admits that he and his people have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Verse 7. He says, to us belongs open shame because of the treachery we have committed against you. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law. 
Verse 13, we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. Verse 15, we have sinned and done wickedly. Verse 16, let your anger and wrath turn away. Verse 17, listen to my prayer and my pleas for mercy. Verse 18, O God, incline your ear and hear. Verse 19, O Lord, hear, forgive, pay attention and act. Do not delay. Do you hear the desperation in Daniel's prayer? Do you hear the humility in his cry for mercy? Brothers and sisters, when you read a prayer like this, or perhaps David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51, I I hope something begins stirring inside of you. I have to assume that, that some of you as you look at Daniel's prayer here, uh, begin thinking something like this. Why aren't my prayers anything like this? Why aren't my prayers anything like this? Why do my prayers lack this sense of desperation and passionate pleading with God? Why so often is there no heartfelt longing for God's final salvation? Well, I think a few things are happening. One is, it takes us back to the first point, we, we don't view sin as seriously as we ought to. But I think there's at least one other thing happening here. At least it's something I've identified in my own life. Perhaps you'll see this in your own life as well. We easily forget the one to whom we are praying. We easily forget the one to whom we are praying. And here's what I mean. When we pray on autopilot, we are not thinking deeply about the character of God. And I want you to hear this. A small and insignificant God will lead to an uninspired and ineffective prayer life. Let me say that again. A A small and insignificant God will lead to an uninspired and ineffective prayer life. Notice in the text how often Daniel appeals to the character of God. And have you ever thought about this when reading a prayer like this? The one praying is not mentioning aspects of God's character because God needs to be reminded of who he is. No, a a profound understanding of the character of God is the fertile soil out of which Daniel's prayer is bursting forth. One gives way to the other. Verse 4, look at it with me. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Verse 19, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. Brothers and sisters, when you kneel before God in prayer and you believe with all your heart that he is great and awesome and steadfast in love, perfectly righteous, abundantly merciful, eternally forgiving, that he is good beyond imagination. 
when your heart is filled with these truths about God, desperate, humble, hopeful, joyful, prayer will burst forth from your lips as well. Oh, if there is if there is anything that should mark the people of God, and I pray will mark this church, especially during confusing times of chaos, like right now, our lives should be marked by regular, persistent, desperate prayer. Cultural upheaval, political division, and societal tension should not first drive the people of God to social media and cable news. It should first drive us to our knees in desperate prayer. God hates sin. God loves prayer. We might say God loves a praying people. Number three, God will deliver. God will deliver. Look with me at verses 20 through 23. I want to read the text for us. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Brothers and sisters, for the believer who seeks hard after God in prayer, adoring his perfections, confessing sin, and crying out for mercy, the answer will always come back, you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. In the broader context of this chapter, it would be easy to pass right by those four words in verse 23. But isn't this precisely the reassurance that Daniel needed before any of the details were given? He's he's overwhelmed by his own failures and the sins of his people. (coughs) He's pleading for mercy. He's asking for deliverance. And before giving Daniel any detailed answer to his heartfelt prayer, Gabriel tells him what he needs to hear most. You are greatly loved. Christian friend, when you kneel before God, beaten down and battling doubt, hear the assurance of the Father. In spite of all that's raging around you, you are greatly loved. This is the The truth that serves like a canopy under which Daniel is to understand everything else. But if you grasp that, if you believe that, if you're reminded of that, 
then in a sense, nothing else matters, does it? Now, after Gabriel delivers this most important reminder to Daniel, he explains more in verses 24 through 27. And, and here is why the final point is God will deliver. Verses 24 through 27, we find out that the promise, promised rescue of God's people, though certain, is still far off. And so the people must wait. Continuing to cling to the sure word of God. He will not forget his people. And when his salvation comes, no enemy will be left standing. But it won't happen yet. Quickly, look with me at verses 24 through 27. I want to read the text again for you. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. For half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. As I mentioned earlier, my aim this morning is not to deal with every detail here, but to give you the main point. At the center of all that Gabriel explains to Daniel is an incredibly important figure. Referred to as the anointed one. The prince. He is mentioned in both verse 25 and again in verse 26. And I believe this figure is clearly referring to Jesus. So here's a synopsis of the message of hope. That God, through Gabriel, delivers to Daniel. The period of time Gabriel refers to as 70 weeks is the time required to bring about the ultimate jubilee. Release from sin, the establishment of everlasting righteousness, and the consecration of the temple. Now listen to how Old Testament scholar Peter Gentry fairly simply breaks this down. Look at your text as I read his explanation and realize that he is, he's going to use the terminology of sabbaticals where you see the word weeks in your Bible. This has to do with the connection of this text to Jeremiah 25, 2 Chronicles 36, and Leviticus 26. Here's what Gentry writes. During the first seven sabbaticals, verse 25, the city of Jerusalem is restored. 
Then for the 62 sabbaticals, end of verse 25, there is nothing to report. In the climactic 70th week, verses 26 and 27, Israel's king arrives and dies vicariously for or in place of his people. Strangely, Gentry writes, desecration of the temple, similar to that of Antiochus Epiphanes in the Greek Empire, is perpetuated by the Jewish people themselves, resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem. These events are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the coming king. His crucifixion is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices and the basis of the new covenant with the many. His death is not for himself, but rather it is vicarious. The rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and the desecration of him as the true temple at his trial by the high priest result in judgment upon the Herodian temple carried out eventually in A.D. 70. Now again, there are various interpretations of this, friends, but... Here's what I want you to see, and then if you want recommendations for more reading, I'll be happy to give those to you. Friends, what is the answer to Daniel's plea for mercy and grace and ultimate rescue and restoration? Well, the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. God will deliver his people. But every act of rescue we read about in the Old Testament, like the Exodus, which Daniel mentioned in his prayer in verse 15, every act of rescue we read about in the Old Testament is pointing to the full and final rescue that comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one who died in the place of sinners and was raised victorious over death. The sacrifice to end all other sacrifices. This Jesus is seated now at the right hand of the Father where he is ruling and reigning and awaiting his return when he will make all things new. So Gabriel says, Daniel, your hope, the hope you long for, is found in Jesus. He will come. He will serve as the substitute. And now I tell you in much the same way, as you await, what is God going to do? How is God going to fulfill his promise? I do the same thing. I point you to Jesus. And I say Jesus came and Jesus will come again. He is your hope. Now, once, once more, before we close, I want you to consider Daniel. So let's bring this together. Here's the application. Here's what I want you to walk away with. Consider Daniel and the circumstances into which he receives this proclamation of what? Good news. He's in exile, surrounded by confusion and chaos. He's aware of his own sin and the sin of his people. 
He has endured wicked rulers living in a kingdom marked by rampant injustice and godless idolatry. He's a man committed to prayer. He's clinging to the promises of God, but even so, he wonders. He wonders what what does the future hold? When will God fulfill his promise? Can any of you identify with this? Can you identify with this? Brothers and sisters, for those of you battling fear and uncertainty, discouraged by all that you see happening around you, grasping for a reason to hope, I want you to hear the good news this morning. Jesus has come, and he's coming again. He is the true king who reigns in perfect holiness, and his kingdom will never pass away. So put your hope in him. Desperately cry out to him in prayer. Declare his good news to all who will listen. Right, so you might look around at the world right now and think, this is so discouraging. This is even depressing. I would ask you to let a text like this reshape the way you're thinking so that you'll respond to all that's happening right now. You'll grieve over sin. You'll cry out to God. But you will think this. What an opportunity. What an opportunity I have as a believer. My hope is in Christ. Nothing that's happening affects that hope. So as I interact with those who have placed their hope in political leaders and political systems, you could go to them and you could say there's a better way. Let me tell you about Jesus. And into their confusion and into their hopelessness, you can deliver the good news. Friends, I hope and pray that God will mobilize us to view all that's going on as a wonderful opportunity What a great time, in this sense, what a great time to be alive. Let's cling to the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray together.